How's everybody doing? Here we are at the beginning of the season of Advent this season. How many of you, by the way, let's just do this real quick. How many of you grew up in a tradition where you were familiar with the church calendar in seasons like Advent? You might have throw your hands up. Okay, some of you, about, about half of you. How many of you just weren't? That, that's a new idea for you. Yeah, that was me. I, uh, I didn't know. We were, the way I was brought up religiously, we sort of, anything that smacked of that sort of tradition, um, we, we would not do. And I remember the first time I found out about Advent, I was a freshman in high school, and I had taken a German class. And one of the things the teacher did was she said, like, if everybody brings in five bucks, uh, Advent's a big deal in Germany, we'll order an Advent calendar. Y- y'all know these calendars have little doors you open with chocolate in them? Now, I did not wait for instructions. I didn't know. I just thought this was, I ate the entire calendar. <laughs> In one setting, which says something to uh, maybe about my inability to wait. Um, but that was my introduction to Advent. And since then, I've learned a lot more about it. And it's become such a rich and beautiful part. One of my favorite seasons on the church calendar. And it's actually, uh, interestingly, it be, it's the beginning of the new church year. It's when the new church year. Now, I know most of us are thinking, we're like five weeks away from the beginning of a new year. But for the Christian calendar, we begin now, and I think it's really symbolic and beautiful that at a time when light is more and more scarce, when the days are getting shorter, colder, um, this is the moment when we say, actually, something new is happening. When, When nothing new is happening, we begin to stubbornly assert that actually, no, something new is happening in the world. Um, this is also the time of year when all my friends who are gardeners, like really intense gardeners, begin to plot their garden for the spring. And it always, the first time I saw a friend of mine post their seed, they got excited about getting their seed catalog at the end of November. And I was like, the, the couple of times in our, my life I've had a garden, I literally thought about it on a Saturday, like, huh, we should have a garden, and went and got stuff and did a garden. And I have friends who are now, you know, getting out the grid paper and diagramming and plotting what's going to be where. And they're doing that not as the weather is warming and the birds are chirping and the flowers and trees are blooming. They're not, by the time we get there, they are in execution mode. Right now, they are thinking as the ground is about to get hard and frozen, they're beginning to dream about what's going to happen because the assumption is the ground will not always be hard and frozen, but at some point it will be soft and fertile and we can plant something in it and it will begin to grow. And there's something for me hopeful about that, that as the cold comes, we'll see how cold it gets. It can be like 70 on Christmas here, right? But, but theoretically, symbolically, as the cold weather comes, um, it's also this time for gardeners and I think Christians to say, actually, it's when it seems like hope is gone. It seems like when there's no hope, that's when we, re- that's, that's our moment to really begin to tell our story. Uh, I think about the season of Advent also for many Christians, it's a time to reflect on the first coming of Jesus. And lots of people talk about the, the second coming of Jesus during this period of time. I love what Fred Craddock, the great preacher said. He said, many people are obsessed with the second coming because deep down they were really disappointed in the first one. Um, and you can hear that in some of the ways we've talked about it. Like Jesus came the first time as a lamb, but he's coming the second time as a lion, right? Like, it's almost like the second time Jesus is like, you know, it turns out the lamb thing didn't work out very well for me. And maybe we're going to do it differently. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think Jesus has ever, would ever be different uh, than he was in the sense of, I think Jesus chose nonviolence. I think Jesus chose to be a lamb. 
Uh, and it wasn't a mistake and it wasn't a swerve and there is no lion Christ coming um, because the lion has always been the lamb. True courage, true bravery is the ability to choose nonviolence, compassion, generosity, love in the face of all sorts of things that aren't those things. Are you with me? I think that's the actual story. What I'd like to do during this Advent, and today we're going to spend a little time on the front end that we won't spend the rest of the weeks. I'm, I'm just sort of, this is like, you know, volleyball, you bump, set, spike. We're setting here. Um, and I want to just kind of explain how I'm approaching our theme for Advent. Um, so this year, what I want to do is I want to look at one of the things that the early followers of Jesus began to do is they began to realize that they were wrestling with two things. One is the tradition that they had inherited. Um, the beliefs, the understanding, the approach, and the expectations in the scriptures of that tradition. And they're holding that in one hand, and yet they also have had this experience of Jesus, which really for them did not fit well within that expectations and interpretation. And so they had to decide what to do. Do we hold on to our tradition and let go of the Jesus experience, or do we hold on to the Jesus experience and let go of our tradition or do we somehow try to go back to our tradition and back to our scriptures and renegotiate them? A word we would use around here is reimagine them, to come back to them again. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I mean, I think this is what we do as a church on a regular basis. We, we're, we're stubborn to say, we don't want to let go of this tradition that, is, that has been, for me, it has been my mother tongue. It has been, I don't want to let go of this tradition, but I also don't want to let go of the experience I've had that has opened my heart and my mind to a different way of understanding the world. And is it possible to bring those two together? So I think part of religious experience is always having sort of the tradition and then having the experience that causes us to go back and renegotiate and reimagine our traditions. So what we're going to do in this series is we're going to stay in the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew does this thing a lot where Matthew will say something that Jesus did something or somebody did something, said something, there's something happened, and he would say, and this was to fulfill the words of the prophets. Or this is according to the prophet Isaiah, this is what was going on. What, what's going on with that? Has anybody ever had trouble with that? Like, like how do we understand what, does the Hebrew Bible actually predict Jesus in that way? And is that what's going on there? And so we're going to spend some time in Matthew over the next four weeks and just look at some of the places where Matthew says, according to the prophets or to fulfill the words of the prophets. And we're going to ask what was really going on there um, and maybe try to figure out how it helps us access the story in our own experience a little bit. And, and, and so what we're going to talk about, really, it's something that in scholarship they would call prophecy ex eventu, which ex eventu is a Latin phrase, and it literally just means after the event. Um, my understanding of what's happening in Matthew um, is not that Matthew went back and said, oh my gosh, we have, this, is, we, this has always been how we've read the Bible. I'm just saying this is Jesus. Um, what I'm going to argue is nobody ever read the Bible the way Matthew did. Uh, well, m maybe starting with the first voice we have is Paul. Uh, I've often said Paul would have failed a seminary Hebrew Bible class, um, the way he engages scripture. And that's, I think Matthew would too. Um, but, but what is actually happening there? And to just lay all my cards on the table, I do not think, um, well, just a couple things before we dive in. First, uh, I, th I think we just need to dispel this myth a little bit, but the entire Bible is not about Jesus. Um, now, it is for Christians in a way. Right? The Bible for us is about, it points us to Jesus. But what often happens with this statement is it ends up erasing Jewish experience. And I've seen Christians on the internet engage with our Jewish siblings and say, well, don't you know all of the Bible is about Jesus? And I'll see my Jew our Jewish siblings say, well, I've been reading 
what I call the Bible my entire life, and I've never seen Jesus in there once. Um, I think it's just important to say that if we want to make that claim out of devotion, that's one thing, but to try to make an objective claim that someone else, essentially someone else's scripture that we're eavesdropping on, um, says a thing, uh, I think that's just unfortunate, and it leads to all sorts of unfortunate, accidental, even anti-Semitic takes. Um, And I think if Christians can't tell the story of Jesus without dipping into anti-Semitism, we should probably stop talking about it, Um, as he was Jewish. (laughs) And so uh, we end up erasing Jesus's identity, part of it, a central, central piece of it. Second, the Hebrew Bible does not predict the birth of Jesus. I know that's a hard one, because Matthew wants us to really think it does. Um, but I don't think in the beginning, nobody read the Hebrew scriptures and said, this is a text about this happening. And it's about this person who'll be born 700, 800, 1,000 years in the future. That's just not how they read the Bible. The way Matthew ends up interpreting the Bible, people weren't doing in Matthew's tradition. Matthew's breaking some new ground here in the way he's engaging scripture. And third, um, what we have in the way Matthew uses the Hebrew Bible is this. We have an experience that led to a renegotiation and a reimagination. Matthew had had experiences of Jesus in some way. Now, Matthew probably wasn't an eyewitness, but he had experiences of Jesus that led him and his community to see Jesus as central to their faith. That the way of Jesus, what Jesus was doing, the unexpectedness of Jesus became central to their faith. And so they had to decide, do we hold on to the tradition and let go of Jesus, or do we hold on to Jesus and let go of the tradition? And Matthew says, that's, it's not an either or. We can embrace our tradition and embrace Jesus, and we'll do that by going back and mining our scriptures for clues. He's not being disingenuous, and he's not being dishonest. When he puts his Jesus glasses on, and he goes back to the scripture, Jesus is everywhere. And of course he was. He's got his Jesus glasses on. He's looking for Jesus. I don't think there's anything wrong with Matthew's approach. I don't think there's anything wrong with Matthew doing that. I think the problem is when Christians in a fury of devotion then try to erase the experience of other people. So we're gonna try really careful during this Advent season to not erase the experience um, of our Jewish siblings, to not impose on their text something that they would not see or own. At the same time, be able to say for us as Christians, as people who have been transformed by the Jesus experience, we, we're, we're going to listen to this and try to figure out what it might mean for us in our own context. So we can understand their context, right? And then we can understand ours a little bit better. And, and uh, it begins with the story of John the Baptist. Well, actually it doesn't in Matthew. That's Mark, and I have a crush on the gospel of Mark. Um, so... I'm going to disorder the book of Matthew, and we're going to start today because often the first week of Advent focuses on John the Baptist, so we're going to focus on John the Baptist, and then next week we're going to go back and pretend like John has not been born yet, and we're going to go back to the Jesus story and look at the whole idea of a virgin conceiving. We're going to look at Jesus being, you know, the the story of the Magi. We're going to look at all that from the gospel of Matthew. We're going to begin with John, Uh, and the the first week of Advent is also the week where we focus on the theme of hope. Um, I, I don't know about you. Anybody else feel a little bit like that hope is sort of a rare commodity right now in the world we live in? You ever turn on the TV and just expect to see good news? It, when I turn on the news, I generally go, what now? Not, oh, good. <laughs> so, so what do we do? How, how do we uh, deal with something like hope? How do we embrace the Advent gift of hope in a world where it seems like 
um, hope is a little bit rare and a little hard to come by. And I thought we should begin with just a cheesy dad story. It's the only way I can frame this, but it's okay because I'm both a dad and embrace the cheesiness of life from time to time. So there's a story, it's a story about two parents, um, and these parents have two children. The siblings couldn't be more different. And if you are a parent of more than one kid, you know, you sort of get to know your kid's tendency. Like, you know that this one kid has this particular outlook and way of approaching the world. And this kiddo is going to talk from the moment she wakes up to the moment she goes to bed and is going to be very, ask a million questions, be super inquisitive. And and this kiddo is kind of more shy and quiet and reserved and more likely to smack their brother when you're not looking. That sort of experience. Um, So these parents have these two children. They know these two children really well. They know that one is a is a unfettered optimist. Nothing can change this kid's optimism. And then they have one that nothing in the universe can make them not pessimistic, right? Everything, all the glasses are half full. Um, and so they decide it's Christmas. Why don't we run an experiment on our kids? As you do, like what puts you in the Christmas spirit more than let's mess with our kids? It's Christmas. And so they decide what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to take the Christmas list of the pessimistic child. We're going to buy them everything on the list. We're going to wrap it and put it under the tree, and they're going to open them all Christmas morning. We're not going to buy anything for the optimistic kid. Um, well, we're going to buy something. We're going to buy a truckload of manure and put it just outside the house. Um, and that's going to be the gift for the optimistic kid. And so they come in on Christmas morning, the optimistic kid comes down the stairs and sees there are no presents with their name on it, but that's okay, that's, that, that must mean it's too big, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. And then the pessimistic kid starts getting handed gifts and he's opening them, and with every gift he's getting more and more agitated and more worried. Like my friends are going to know I got this and they're going to be jealous and it's going to change our relationship and like now I've got to take care of this and everybody's going to want it and you know, like just mounting. Like most of us would be like, oh my gosh, this is my entire list from top to bottom. Or if it's what my kids do, it's there's a list, but then everything they see between now and Christmas somehow gets grandparented into the list that you're now on the hook for, right? And so just unwrapping, unwrapping, getting more and more. And finally, finally, when all the presents are unwrapped, this kid just storms out of the room, goes to their room and weeps. Pessimistic kid performed to a T, right on cue, exactly as the parents expected. The whole time watching this, the optimistic kid is getting more and more excited, like almost to the point where they're vibrating, they're so excited. And they're realizing as every present gets unwrapped, they're like, wow, if they got everything on their list, I wonder what they're getting me. Like, it's too big to wrap. It won't fit in the tree. It can't even be brought into the house. And so finally the parents say, are you ready for your gift? And the kids, yes. And they go outside and they look in the yard and there's a pile of manure. And the kid starts clapping. He's jumping. And the parent says, you realize what that is, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a pile of manure, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But with a pile of manure that large, there has to be a pony somewhere. <laughs> um, and that sort of, like, I don't know about you, but talking about hope in the current context of our world, to me, feels a little bit like that kind of naivete. Like, you've got, the facts are in front of you. We're, we're facing some difficult times. Um, and it seems like to be standing over there cheering and being excited, knowing that we're facing more difficult times. We have an election coming next year. I don't know if you remember. It's hard to peak your anxiety there. Um, but there's a lot of things that are happening in the world. It seems a little naive to be excited or to feel hope in this particular context. And this is this kind of context John the Baptist emerges. I love, by the way, when Matthew talks about this, it says, in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness 
that's awesome. I just like to imagine a puff of smoke and then John, like just in the middle of the desert. And John is a really symbolic figure. I don't mean symbolic and John didn't exist, but I mean the way Matthew is talking about John, because I think John did exist, um, but I think the way Matthew's talking about John, he is layering symbol after symbol. And whether the John of history did that and owned it or Matthew's putting it on him, it matters. And it begins with, let's think about what John is wearing. John is wearing camel hair. Can you imagine the itch factor of being in the desert, in the heat, wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey? If John invites you to a Christmas party, don't go. (laughs) Next week, we have our Christmas party. We're inviting you all next Sunday to wear your best ugly sweater. If John showed up, John would win the competition. Camel hair wins every time. If you see that as a challenge, please accept it. Um, I don't know where you'll get that much camel hair on a short notice, but I believe in you as a, a group of people. Now, here's what's happening. John's clothing, this, this whole getup of John, is actually a wink and a nudge to another figure in the Bible, a person named Elijah. Everybody familiar with this? the story of Elijah? He eventually was taken into heaven in a whirlwind, riding a chariot of fire. That like you do, um, that Elijah figure. Elijah, so at the end of the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, so the prophets would often talk about things aren't how they should be. Again and again, we found ourselves being oppressed. And we know someday God is going to put the world to rights. Someday God is going to act in history to liberate us and to bring a world of justice and peace. The prophets disagreed on what that would be. Some prophets saw the day of the Lord is what they called it. They saw it as a day of gloom and darkness and disaster and divine revenge. God's going to get all the people who messed with us. And we're going to stand back and be like, our God's bigger than your, you know, that sort of experience. Then you have these other prophets who have a much more universal and inclusive experience where they say, you know, eventually, eventually God's love will surpass all of the divisions and all the ways we've carved up the world. And God will call us all to the mountain and we'll throw a feast where everybody gets enough food to eat, where everybody has a seat at the table, where we'll look at our weapons and think, my God, what were we thinking? And we'll beat our swords into plowshares. That's the day of the Lord. So there's this vision and we're sort of being invited. How do we, how, what do we think about that? Do, which prophets do we agree with? The ones who think it only comes through disaster and violence? Or do we side with the prophets who say, no, there's a just and generous way to bring peace? Okay, I don't know what's happening in there, but it sounds like they're doing some heavy machinery stuff. Um, And so in the book of Malachi, Malachi ends by saying, right before the day of the Lord happens, right before the big moment, Elijah is coming back to us. And Elijah will turn the hearts of children to their parents and the hearts of parents to their children. Elijah will lead us in sort of dissolving some of these barriers and boundaries we've put up with each other and bring us into a time where we are ready to receive the kingdom. And John emerges on the scene. And Matthew, because Matthew doesn't want to be subtle, later Matthew's going to be very explicit, like John's Elijah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is the person. And John enters into the wilderness. Now this is also not just his his getup, but where he's at, the Jordan River in the wilderness. The Jordan River, the place where the people crossed to come into the land of promise. The wilderness, symbolic of where they wandered after being liberated, after they crossed the sea in the Exodus, they wandered and languished in the desert in the wilderness for 40 
years. John is out in the desert and out in the wilderness. And in the wilderness is a place of like trying to sort out who we're going to be and what we're going to do. And John's out there going, it's time for a baptizing. And so John is calling to people and his message is really simple. We got to get ready. We got to prepare ourselves. And John's solution for how we get ourselves ready is we got to repent. Now, when I hear that word and when you hear that word, it has generations of baggage on it that essentially has been meant to be like, feel really awful about yourself and never really get over it, but trust you're forgiven anyway. That's not what repent means. It just simply means to change the way you're thinking, to go a different direction, to think differently. And it's like John is saying, if we want to experience this day of the Lord kingdom of God arrival, We're gonna have to change the way we're thinking about God, about each other, about ourselves, about what's possible in the world. You start talking about world peace in our world and people look at you as if you have no idea what's going on, right? But John's like, we're gonna have to think differently if we want to experience something different. And Matthew says, this is the one that the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, there's a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make the path straight. John's that voice. John is the one teeing up the big moment when God would decisively, definitively act to do the thing. And of course, for followers of Jesus, they would say Jesus is the decisive, definitive act, right? That's, that, that's what this is teeing up. John is the one who's setting the course for Jesus. Now, the reference here, when Matthew says, this is according to the prophet Isaiah, here's the text he's actually referencing. And before I read you the text, I want to give you a little bit of context for the book of Isaiah. There are 66 chapters, and scholars pretty much agree now that Isaiah, that we, as we have it, was not the product of one prophet in one particular time, but at least two, probably three different prophets who wrote over different eras of history. So you have one that wrote during the Assyrian Empire. That's the first Isaiah, 1 through 39. You have the one who wrote during, just before when uh, they're about to come back from captivity, from exile. They're about to be allowed to come home. That's when Isaiah 40 through uh, 55 were written. And then you have the last 10 chapters written a little later than that after they'd already come home. Keep that in mind. The people, when Isaiah writes these words, have been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. The last, their their ancestors saw their temple destroyed and their city burned to the ground. And so there are a generation of people who are about to go home, but they've never been home before. And yet, that is somehow home. Isn't that the strangest feeling? Like, when I talk to, when we go back home where I'm from, when we go back to Appalachia, and I think there's an age thing here. Used to, if I had to make the trip back to home, I would be just like, oh my gosh, I have to go home. And now I'm just like, oh, I get to go home and I get to put my feet on that ground and be in that place. And when I talk about that, I'll talk about it with my kids as it's our home. But they hadn't set foot there, some of them hadn't, or they have now, but when I would talk about it, they'd never been there. And that's this experience. They, they've, been dis- they've been exiled, they've been away, and now they're, they're going back home. And the prophet Isaiah emerges on the scene and speaks to these people who have longed, who have been sitting by the rivers of Babylon weeping for a generation, or more gen- two or three generations, longing for a place many of them had never been. And here's what Isaiah writes, speaking for God. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, her penalty is paid. 
She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is writing to this group of exiles saying, pack your bags. I have a message of comfort. The bad times are over. You're going home. And this is not going to be like when we came home from Egypt. And we got stuck in the desert and it was a problem. The road's gonna be smooth and the highways, all the lumpiness and all the mountains. Obviously, this is not something that could take place on the highways of Tennessee, if you've driven here. It is taking your life and your car's longevity into your hands as you drive from one pothole to the other, right? And and you don't slow down because you gotta get somewhere, so you just absorb the impact. Um, but, But this is like, imagine all the road gets smoothed out. No valleys, no mountains. It's all smooth sailing. You're going to make great time. This is going to be a different kind of trip home. Now, for Matthew to make this connection of saying, I think Isaiah wasn't just talking about something that happened for our ancestors a long time ago. Because, you know, we've been back in this land for a while now, and we haven't, still really haven't been free And we actually are still under the boot of the Roman Empire. We're not free to make our own decisions. We're not free to to even worship really necessarily in the way we want to, to engage our faith the way we want to. We still have to ask permission to this empire that's telling us what to do and calling the shots and taxing us. And maybe Isaiah wasn't just writing about that experience then, but because it didn't really fix all the problems, maybe Isaiah is writing about our moment. And maybe Isaiah is saying that God isn't finished in our moment yet, that maybe there's still, even though we're here, there's still a sort of journey back that we haven't been on yet. And Isaiah says, John is the one in the desert saying, flatten out the roads, here comes the kingdom. And John is, John is the appetizer for the main course, right? Like John is setting things up for the experience of Jesus in Matthew's story. It's a kind of liberation movement. It's a kind of return. Even though they're in the land, they aren't really in the land the way they want to be in the land. If you imagine how people in Matthew's original audience would have heard this, their city had just been destroyed and their temple had just been burned down again. Roughly 10 years before Matthew wrote, they had just gone through this very experience again and they're still longing for this sort of decisive moment when God would act and God would do the thing. And then I think about our moment, the moment we're living in. Uh, And I don't think Isaiah envisioned 2023, right? I don't think he's Nostradamusing here. But I do think we live in a moment where it really feels like the gap between our longings and dreams for the world and the reality of our lived experience keeps growing. Anybody else feel that? And I think that's personal for lots of us. Like we feel that in our own bones and our own experience that the the gap between our longings and hopes and dreams and the gap between our reality and lived experience just keeps widening. I think we feel that as a people. It feels like every time we move toward equality, we take two steps forward and three steps back. It feels like every time we're moving toward dealing with poverty in a meaningful way, we take two steps forward and 10 steps back. It feels like like there's this continual push and pull. We get a little bit closer and then somebody moves our hands farther and farther and farther away. 
And it, like, can you imagine somebody getting up and going, okay, I got a message of comfort. The gap is gonna close. We're gonna make the path straight. We're gonna make the road non-bumpy and non-potholy. And I don't mean holy in the H-O-L-Y sense. We're, we're gonna do the thing and we're gonna, we're gonna get there as a people. I think about Dr. King on the eve of his murder and assassination saying to a group of people in Memphis, I may not get there, but we will get there. That kind of unabashed, relentless hope in the face of challenge, in the face of difficulty, that the story has not been finally written, that there is still plenty to be done and there's still plenty of possibility. And if we give up now, we are letting down not only ourselves and our ancestors, but we are letting down every generation that would come after us because we have not done our part to move the needle toward justice in human history. I just imagine those words being received by Matthew's audience and going, yes, yeah, yeah, that's what we want. I love these words of Isaiah, comfort, oh, comfort my people. Walter Brueggemann says, we may understand comfort as transformative solidarity. That is not simply an offer of solace, but a powerful intervention that creates new possibilities. Advent is a season of waiting and I'm not good at that. That's what we've been told, right? Advent is a season of waiting. We, we don't eat all the Advent calendar on the first day, apparently. That's the party foul in the Advent. Uh, I also don't buy Christmas presents um, till close to Christmas because I can't keep them. I will give them away very quickly. Um, not great at waiting. I just sometimes wonder if we've gotten the waiting bit of Advent wrong. And I wonder, while we've been waiting and staring at the heavens saying, when? When? When are you going to act? When are you going to do the thing? When are you going to bippity-boppity-boo it? When are you going to show up? When are you going to change the world? When are you going to change our hearts? When are you going to do the things you said you'd do? I think perhaps during Advent, maybe the one waiting isn't us. Maybe the one waiting during Advent is God. And maybe the entire experience is when we're saying, God, when, 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 God is looking back at us going, that's been my question for like ever. When? When will you join me? When will you realize that any intervention I will make in the world will be through flesh and blood? That I'm not going to go over your head on this one, but I'm going to go through your hands and through your feet and through your generosity and through your compassion to transform the world in a meaningful way. I think it's possible that while we've been waiting on God going, look, ever, God's going, I, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you to join me. I'm waiting on you to realize that the way the mountains get brought down and the valleys get built up is not with this, because God's not Thanos if you're a Marvel fan. <laughs> the way God does that is through human beings taking on, like we have been called to construction. We have been called to tear down mountains that are keeping people away. We have been called to build up valleys that are keeping people away. And our job is to bring hope. And the way we do that is through partnering with God, with each other, and realizing that our task is not to wait our task is to join the one who's been waiting forever. How might Advent be a different experience if we saw it that way? But while we've been waiting for God, God has always been waiting for us. I think it's a reminder for us at the beginning of a new church year 
that while we long for an era of justice and peace, that we have actually been entrusted with the work of bringing that world into being. And that there are some of us right now who have been equipped and invited to be the voice of comfort, the voice in the wilderness, while, while people are, are afraid and they're scared and they're wondering if there is hope and there is a way forward. Some of us have been tasked to say, I know this may sound like it's off the wall, but the world isn't going to hell in a handbasket, and it may look like a dumpster fire, but there is hope. As long as we are breathing, as long as we are willing, there is hope. I think we need more of us to be that voice. And then there are some among us who need to hear that voice, who need to hear a voice in the wilderness where they feel like they've been wandering for so long, looking for community, looking for love, looking for hope, look, looking to belong. And they've gone from place to place and institution to institution. They've been rejected and turned away and they're looking for hope. And they're looking for some voices who are, who are brave enough and, and maybe just uh, stubborn enough to say, we will not give up hope as long as there's a molecule of breath in our body, we will join God in this work of seeking to bring this world into existence. I think some of the ways we've told the Christmas story sanitize a little bit. Have you ever notice how Mary's hair just always ends up looking pretty perfect and their, their clothes are neatly pressed? And Joseph's not freaking out whatsoever. <laughs> Jesus is quiet. We have a whole song about this. Silent night with a newborn? I have friends who have a kiddo who's like almost two and he texted me yesterday and he said, he's still not sleeping. <laughs> it's like, he never will. <laughs> I'm the voice in the wilderness telling you it only gets worse, right? Like, um, like, like this, we've sanitized the Christmas story. It, it was messy and difficult and challenging and fraught. And, 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 it's a story that takes seriously the challenges and problems of the world and does so with this defiant hope. This is we won't give up, we will not stop, we will keep working because we believe that this vision that God has, this dream of God of, for a world of justice and peace can be real. Christmas is not a call to an otherworldly fantasy land but a call to commit ourselves to the work of living into a new way of being human together right here and right now. And we need more voices in the wilderness insisting that it's not crazy, that it's actually possible. We have been here before. I've been listening to podcasts um, about uh, John F. Kennedy, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, just that era before Kennedy, during Kennedy, after Kennedy. Wasn't around for that. Wow, I don't know how y'all made it through who you were. It was a scary time. It was a time when it seemed like everything could disintegrate. There could be a nuclear war at any moment. We've been in these moments before as a species. We can make the right choices. We can make the choices that are just and generous. We can make the choice to partner with God and to create a different world that works for all of God's children because every one of God's children is beloved and every one of God's children deserves to live in safety with enough food to eat, safe place to sleep, and their basic human needs deserve to be met and they deserve to belong. Are you with me? Yes. And I, all this time later, I think Christmas still has the potential to change the world. 
because Christmas has the potential, and it has changed the world in so many ways, right? I mean, in negative ways, in positive ways. But if we can be inspired by this story to become voices in the wilderness that insist that hope is not naive, but it is the bedrock of what will bring about the future, if we can insist on that, if we can join together and join our creativity resources, the entirety of who we are, we can actually see the world become different. And what starts is one person wearing camel hair in the desert, screaming his head off, turns into a group of people joining together, saying anything is possible. And that's our work. That is what it means to be Christmas people in the world.